This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with Muck Delivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Well, hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. Well, we're speaking to you after a nil-nil draw with Millwall on Saturday. However, that is not where we're going to start today's pod, because whilst obviously the game, a huge game, was hugely significant in Albion's season, um, the draw kind of leaves it very much on a knife edge of being able to go one uh, one way or another, if truth be told. Uh, I think a defeat would have been certainly probably have, uh, have put Millwall out of, out of arm's length, uh, if not the playoffs themselves. A win would have brought them right back into touching distance. A draw does neither one thing nor the other, really, if, if truth be told. It leaves Albion massively relying on their game in hand to a certain degree. But that's not where we start today because there was also some massive news during the week as Albion released their accounts. And at a cursory glance, it appeared initially to not be that negative. Uh, Albion published a £5 million profit. However, after, uh, as you do a little bit of digging, it got more and more and more concerning. So the first of all, the £5 million profit we have to take with a pinch of salt because the, the accounts are up to June 2022. So within there is our first and most substantial parachute payment. We've obviously, since those accounts have published, received our second parachute payment and we will not be receiving another one. We obviously either have Premier League money by going up this season or we have nothing. We have the money that comes from being in the EFL Championship, which is a tiny percentage of the the money that you not only get from the Premier League, but also that you get within the parachute payments. So Albion will see a massive, massive drop off in their in in the amount of money in their accounts from the accounts published up to the point ending uh, June 2022, which are the ones that have been published. As you go to look up a little bit deeper, the club 
mentioned that staff costs decreased from 76.9 million to 42.4 million. Again, on the face of it, looking like a positive, but that's fairly standard for dropping out of the Premier League. Most players have flex downs in their contracts. Generally, those flex downs are in and around the, the 50% mark. So players have their wages hugely reduced. So to actually see the, um, the, the staff wages effectively, the, what, that, what those are, reduced by less than 50 uh, less than 50 percent is actually a little bit concerning to me i would have expected it to have dropped a bit more than that furthermore a 42.4 million pound wage bill which will not have come down greatly from those numbers you imagine we've obviously since then have uh let uh sam johnston go Obviously, he went on a free. He will have been on uh, on a good uh, good amount of money. But then, at the same time, we brought in Jed Wallace, John Swift, OK Yokoslu. We brought in a number of players who will be on fairly substantial contracts. So I don't think it's unreasonable to think that Albion's wages will not be that much different to the forty two point four million published in these accounts at the close of play of this season. June 2023. So that's also a little bit worrying. And then you get into how do we pay those wages when you are losing such a large amount from the from the parachute payments. So people will say things like, well, we've got Jake Livermore out of contract in in the summer. We've got Tom Rogic out of contract, Eric Peters, these players can be let go. Yes, they can. But looking at what their reported wages, the general estimation is that to release the players who were out of contract in the summer, Key and Brian as well, would save the club approximately three million a year. That makes a very, very tiny dent in a forty-two million pound wage bill. This was then backed up by supplementary information that came alongside what the club published um, from the auditors, which suggested that the club would have to sell to uh, to continue as a growing con- uh, as a uh, as a going concern. Sorry, growing concern is what we have. A going concern is what the club is um, that the would ha- that they were factoring in player sales and there seemed to be a suggestion that if those player sales weren't met in the summer that there would be some concern about West Bromwich Albion as a going concern i.e how do we continue to operate as a business this then underlines why we took out a 20 million pound loan because we obviously need that money to help fund the business the other real concern and this was a big concern is obviously I've I've worked at the football club um i i you know i i i i wouldn't say that i have in-depth knowledge of the finances by any stretch of the imagination i was in the communications team i you know had some level of input into publishing these uh, these things on various social channels and things like that but i, I didn't have an in-depth knowledge of the finances and nor do i purport to my co-host who i'm going to throw to in a minute has much greater financial knowledge than i um but I, I would like to make the point very very clearly that anything that i 
interpret here is from an amateur standpoint in terms of understanding these accounts and also being informed by people much more learned than myself, which is the things that Kieran Maguire has put out on social media, that Martin Ziegler has put out in his article about this, which I encourage you to go and read because they're both excellent pieces that our wonderful local journalists have written about this as well. There are some excellent informative pieces about our our finances and the recent accounts that have been released. But the suggestion seems to be from everything that if we don't, if we don't go up this, this season, if we don't sell players this summer, then we have a problem. And the other issue, the, the thing that really worried me is that the counts were then only forecast until the end of the 23, 24 season. Now, my expectation would normally be that uh, that that club accounts would be forecast probably over about three years. Now, again, I am slightly guesstimating here, but I would assume that the reason that they have not forecast beyond that is because uh, the, the the majority of the loan repayments start to kick in after that point, and it is very very hard to forecast the club as a going concern from that point on. All told, Pete, it's extremely worrying, isn't it? Without Premier League football, certainly at the end of this season, I think we probably see some of our more saleable assets probably sold in the summer, which then makes getting back up the the following season, in the 23-24 season, much, much harder. And I think if we don't do it then, which will be made much more difficult by the fact that players will probably have to leave you kind of wonder financially where we find ourselves once we hit June 24, don't you? Well, yeah, there's quite a lot to be concerned about in there. Um, obviously, the starting line on the, the club website was that there was a profit made um, of 5.4 million. But I would imagine that some of that, the sale of Pereira, I think was in that period. And I imagine a decent profit would have been recorded on that in the accounts, which probably makes up... Um, a fair amount of that profit so it's profit that's probably relied on player sales um, rather than just operations which I mean obviously as a football club you are going to expect to sell players but you can't solely rely on your business running because of that um, 17.8 million of uh, player sales revenue um, I think was the number on the club website yeah so I don't think that's it's not completely recorded as profit I think it depends on how long the player had left on the contract and everything Um as to how much you can record for profit. But again, it's, it's player sales that's kind of made up that. Obviously, the wages is a, a big concern. They've dropped to, well, last season, they dropped to 42 million. Um, like you say, I can't imagine they would have dropped too much this season. Um, I don't think we'd shed too much off our wage bill, especially bringing in players in like Jed Wallace, John Swift and Akaya Kuzlu. They're all obviously going to be, um, they'd have demanded high wages, especially with all three being on a free and plenty of clubs competing for them. So, yeah, they're not going to be on, on low wages. Um, so it may, we may even see that it's gone up when we get to see the accounts for this season, next year. And obviously, revenue's going going down, um, as you'd expect, going into the, into the championship. And they'll be going down even further next season because of the parachute payments. I think Kevin Maguire, obviously the, the football finance expert, has estimated that revenues might be as low as, well, will probably be as low as, around 22 to 24 million um, in the coming season, the ne- in next season, if we don't go up, which is massively worrying when you consider that currently our wage bill is going to be similar to last year, which was 42 million. So you're looking at, at our 
money coming in being about half of what we're paying out on wages if we don't reduce our wage bills, sell some players and um and kind of adapt to being more of a adapt financially to be more of a champ well, to be in a championship team rather than a, pl- a team that's come down from the Premier League. So I think if well, we're gonna have to if we don't go up to, to sell players, um and reduce that wage bill because as well as the wages to pay, we've still got um the interest on the loans that we've taken out to pay, which is looking less and less likely that they they will be repaid. Because it has to be said, Pete, that is that that is a startlingly high number to be to have as your wage bill as a, a championship club, isn't it? That's you know that it's it's too much money. That that realistically, that is a Premier League wage bill. And the other concern there, and the the other big concern for me, Pete, is they the, the, there was there was talk within those accounts of player sales player sales effectively propping up our financial situation how many saleable assets do we really have in this squad would be my big question because i think dk is extremely saleable if he can stay fit for long enough to uh, to to convince potential suitors that he is worth paying good money for i think he will fetch decent money depending on how desperate we are to sell because obviously a desperate seller is a weak seller and can often be exploited in terms of the price but i think you know realistically speaking everything being even i think you sell dk for decent money then once you get beyond that you start looking and saying the issue that you've got is that the clubs who are going to buy your players for money because we had this problem when we wanted to sell Callum Robinson, we had this problem when we wanted to get Carl and Grant out, is that championship clubs don't have any money. They can't pay fees. We, you know, we ended up getting, what was it, 700,000 a million for, for Callum Robinson. He's worth far more than that. In a reasonable market, he is worth far more than that. Whether you like Callum Robinson as a player or not, the fact is the guy had, I think it was 17 goal contributions last season. That is worth more than 700,000 to a million. That can make a big difference in anybody's season. And you've only got to look at how Cardiff have struggled to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to score goals since he's got out the, gone out the side. I think. <sighs> The problem is you've got to look at our squad and say, who would Premier League clubs or at the very worst clubs that have just been relegated from the Premier League? Because they do still have a few quid. Although having looked at some of the finances of some of the clubs who might come down, if Everton come down, they seem to be in all sorts of trouble as well. Realistically, you are looking probably at 22, 23 clubs, Pete. Who, who you would be looking to sell players to unless you're selling them abroad. But then again, a lot of clubs abroad haven't got any money because they've all been so heavily impacted by COVID that they're all struggling. The, the, this is not, this is not the transfer market of five years ago where as a championship club, you can look to sell your best players for really high sums of money. You've got to hope Premier League clubs want them. And, and I look at our squad and I say, who would Premier League clubs want? Maybe John Swift. Definitely Daryl DK. Beyond that, maybe somebody takes a gamble on Malumbi. I mean, I've seen a few people have said O'Shea to me, but the the problem is a lot of a lot of teams now want more cultured centre halves, and I don't mean that disrespectfully to Dar O'Shea. He's excellent at what he does, but 
He's not Rio Ferdinand in the making. And I think I think if people are dipping into the championship for a centre-back, they're probably looking more at your, you know, your Rob Dickey types than, 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 than your Dar O'Shea's, if, if truth be told. And I, I don't, I don't know how many of them we're going to be able to fetch fees for. Not, not, le- not least because you've got other players like Carl and Grant who are on, a, who've got amortized transfer fees attached to them, which makes them very difficult to sell and shift on. And they're on big wages, similar with Grady D and Garner, from what I understand. And then you've got older players. You know, I think Carl Bartley, I think, is rolling into another year of his contract. Could be wrong on that one. Um, but then you've got Matt Phillips, who, granted, has been excellent since Corbran came in. But nonetheless, he will be on decent money. And if you're trying to shift Matt Phillips, the, the, his age and his injury record is just going to go against him. It becomes really, really difficult. Pete, doesn't it? Because 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 the the what you end up with, is, and I mean even Jed Wallace, who I think is a tremendous footballer, I don't know how much how much monetary value he has in this market because he's approaching thirty. He's never played in the Premier League. Is a Premier League club really going to come in and offer us three, four, five million for Jed Wallace? I uh, when when it comes to player sales, I, I really don't. I'm not convinced where the value is in this squad. Yeah, and you said there's maybe 23, 24 clubs that could be interested in players, but it's probably even less than that because I can't see any of our squad really moving on to the top six, seven of the Premier League. So Good point. Yeah, to be honest, I hadn't discounted the really the massive clubs in the league. Yeah, so that, that just reduces it further. But yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying, that we don't really have many players that are going to be of interest to Premier League clubs and everyone else in the Championship has got very, very little money. So... Um, you doubt that they're going to come in and, and pay fees for players. Um, but similarly for Albion, it's it's maybe less about the fees that you're actually bringing in for the players and more about actually shifting them off your wage bill because that is what we, we drastically need to um, reduce. And I suppose there's, there's a difference between bringing players in for profit, uh, selling players for profit and selling them for um, because you need the cash. Because if you if it was for a financial fair play point of view, then I mean, selling the youth players is always a, a good way to to make your books look better because you just record basically straight profit on them players that come through the academy. But you're not going to receive as much cash, maybe. So, but for our win at the minute, it looks like it's more of a, a cash flow issue than a, a profit or loss issue. So we need to actually be selling players that are on high wages, get those wages um, off of our books, and well, ideally receive a transfer fee as well. But like you said... But you also need enough money, Bank Pete, to then pay back the £20 million loan. Exactly. So, yeah, we need to get cash. Because that's... Sorry to interrupt, but that's that's the problem, isn't it? I understand why we needed to take the loan out, but it, it ends up being, if we didn't have the £20 million loan, it would just be, right, we've got to clear the decks, get as many players off the wage bill as we can. I I realise why we needed the loan. I'm not saying it was the wrong decision to take the loan out. I, I think we kind of, we were painted into a corner and I don't see what else we could have done. But the, the problem it then creates is that not only do you need to then get yourself down to a sustainable level as a, as a championship club who can stay in the championship and afford those wages on the money that comes from being in the championship. But now we need millions of extra pounds per year just to pay off the loans that uh, that, that we've taken out. Yeah, exactly. So the loans were obviously the gamble for us to get up in this year or maybe next year. But 
Um, even so, I think we need to start reducing the wage budget, wage budget at the end of this year. Um, but they're a gamble for that. And in the future, we're going to pay for it. So in the future, if we hadn't taken the loans out, we'd have had an extra couple of million each year probably to spend on wages and have that, that better squad because of it. Uh, but now we're going to, if we don't go up, then we're going to have to, to cut back even further. And because of this gamble, we're going to have to pay for it by having a, a weaker squad in the next couple of years, probably because we've got to cut that wage bill even further just to find the cash to pay off the well the interest and the actual loan repayments um so yeah like i say it's a gamble um if it goes up if we go up then you'd say probably say it's paid off but it's probably risking our chances of going up in the next 10 years if we don't go up this season or or maybe even next season so um it's a big gamble and um yeah if we don't if we're not willing to adapt and accept that we're a championship club after next season well, I really don't see how we'll be a League One club if we don't. Yeah. If if we don't, and and that's a best case scenario, Pete, because we could we could easily tumble through a couple of divisions like Bolton and end up as a League Two club. Yeah, if we if you don't start accepting where you are as a club, then then you just yeah you're basically throwing money away that you don't have, and and that's when you get into real real trouble as a club. And it comes back to as well, Pete, why for months and months and months, you and I have banged on about the Luke Dowling effect on this football club and the, uh, the, the, the way that he systematically dismantled our youth system um, and, and a lot of our best youth products left alongside a, a lot of our very successful youth staff uh, leaving. And the fact that since Lie came in, I mean, Dowling was a big part of, of, of seeing some historically successful recruitment staff leaving the building but I'm not putting this all on Dowling uh, in terms of the recruitment not getting any better because it hasn't got any better since Dowling left and Lai has just never had a plan for the recruitment side of things and and the the, the reality is Pete that if you are going to become a sustainable championship club off the back of the limited amount of money that you get from being in the championship, you need to do a couple of things. You need to produce your own talent, which at the moment we're still seeing the, uh, don't be fooled by the likes of Griffiths and Palmer and Taylor Gardner Hickman and um, and and Tom Fellows and people like that coming through as uh, don't worry our, our academy is okay. You are seeing the end of the ends of the Mark Harrison era still coming through here because once you get beyond that, I'm very very concerned at how much talent we have coming through because I've had I've had it said to me by a couple of people who worked around the club on the youth side of things that what we're seeing at the moment is the last strong group coming through and that we should be worried beyond that. So I'm concerned. I'm concerned at how much of our own talent we've got coming through. Once we get beyond the, la- the, the, the these, these few that are coming in now, are we, have we rebuilt that academy structure enough? I'm not as involved as I used to be. So, uh, you know, I, I know a lot about the Mark Harrison era and how wonderfully successful he and the, uh, and people like Steve Hopcroft were at bringing in young players and, and getting them, getting them through. Jimmy Shan, obviously doing an amazing part of that. Uh, Mike Scott, I could mention name after name after name of successful guys who all unfortunately ended up going out the door, but. I'm not as involved anymore. So maybe we have rebuilt it and maybe we will start seeing the talent coming through, but I'm worried at the amount of good players like 
Tim Rogbenham, like um, Louis Barry, um, like Finazaz, who've all walked out the door, gone to places like Aston Villa. That have we got that level of talent coming through? Because from next season is the point at which we would be leaning upon those young players. And the other thing is you've got to be intelligent in your recruitment. You've got to find players with value. You know, I mean, if if you're not relying on the youth system, like Brentford, who disbanded their academy, they disbanded their academy and just completely relied on their intelligent recruitment. But we don't seem to be doing that either. There's nothing intelligent about our recruitment. Pete and I have talked about this multiple times. Our recruitment seems to be blindingly obvious and at, at times a little bit lucky when you when you're recruiting guys who live near to Steve Bruce or 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 uh, Steve Bruce's son-in-law suggests you a suggests you a player to bring in from Salford or whatever. That's you know that's almost blind luck. It's it's archaic. It's twenty thirty years out of date. And my big worry, Pete, is that I unless Carlos pulls a miracle out the bag and gets us up this season, we I think we have to accept that our future at the best, in a best case scenario, is to be a championship club who has to fight their way back to the top table in the championship over a period of a few years. And I don't think we have the infrastructure in place to go and do that. Yeah, that's the worrying thing is that all the really good things that were in place at the club when Dan Ashworth was here and, well, under Jeremy Peace, um, they all seem to have been ripped up and and like we're starting again. Um, and we had a really good thing that looked like it was built. Um, so if we'd, if we'd still got the same infrastructure, then I think you'd be a bit more confident because the recruitment would be smarter. Um, and would probably see have a better um, youth set up to bring players through. Um, I mean, the other issue with the youth set up at the minute is it seems that we're just bringing through goalkeepers because we had another, I think it, uh, Ben Cisse made his, um, or at least was called up to one of the England youth squads over the international break. And that's just, needs another goalkeeper. So we're going to have, well, obviously not yet, but in, in a few years, we may end up having Palmer, Griffiths and and this Ben Cece, if he lives up to... His Maybe we get special dis- dispensation to play three or four of them across the goal line. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. But yeah, it seems to be we're just producing keepers at the minute. But there are a couple more that promising youth players that we've got. Obviously, Reyes Cleary has previously done really well at, at youth level, but there's obviously not been fancied by um, the senior managers to make the step up yet, but he's still very young, of course. Um, and then... Caleb Taylor, who's having an ex- excellent season at Cheltenham this year. Um, I think he'll be quite heavily involved next season for Albion, um, which is will obviously be good when, when we're speaking about wages. It, if you can offload a couple of the centre-backs, the senior ones that are on high wages, and if t- Caleb Taylor can come in and form like he has done at Cheltenham, then I think we'll be really happy with that because he looks to be a really promising prospect and, and looks to be ready to to make this step up to championship football after a good season in League One. Obviously, there's that Zach Ashworth as well. Um, so there are, and Tom Fellows. Um, so there are a couple of, of promising youth players that, that may we may be looking to integrate into the squad next season and use a bit more. Um, but I think... But the thing is, what? Where, sorry, Pete, where you'd like them to be involved is, is as you say, you, you, you let your you know, your, your Bartleys, you let your, maybe your Matt Phillipses go. And that's no disrespect to either of those players. I'm naming them because they're on high wages and they're, they're of an age where you'd probably want to get them out. 
and then and, and then you let O'Shea and uh, and Taylor f- form a partnership. You uh, you know you, you have Ashworth learning off uh, off Townsend as backup at uh, at left back. You have um you you, are, you have fellows um backing up the likes of Wallace and Dean Garner in 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 the wide areas, and you still have the potency of Swift and DK and and Thomas Asante up front. That's the scenario that you want for those young players. My concern is that that isn't what's hap- what what will happen is that we will end up shipping out the players who we actually want to keep rather than the likes of Bartley and Phillips and people like that and the get getting rid of the likes of DK and Swift maybe Wallace if we could find a buyer maybe Brandon as well and finding ourselves in a situation where we have to rely on these players to actually do it at, at a really really young age without without the support of quality senior players around them oh yeah of course you don't want to have to rely on these players these young players it's more of a case of them being a bit of cover and getting minutes here and there and developing that way rather than just being thrown into the first team and then you know asked to form a promotion push for us or or whatever because yeah obviously they're still really young still learning learning the game and and developing so as I say, yeah, they're not. You don't want to have to rely on them. It's more of a case of can they fill some of the spots that on the bench and, and replace those kind of players, and then be ready to be called upon if we need them, if there's injuries or or what have you. So yeah, in, you mean instead of having the, the likes of Rogic, Reach, you know, players who are well play, well paid on the bench, having these players. Yeah, absolutely. They're you know that'd be a big big positive for the club financially if we can swap. You know, high earners like Rogic out for someone like Tom Fellows. Whether it's going to be a big benefit on the pitch is a different question because obviously it's you know, Tom Fellows is never played at this level and it's he's still very young. Um, and this is the same case for all of the youth players. Here. I'm talking just saying Tom Fellows for you know it could be any that I'm talking about, but it's obviously a big step up to compare him to Tom Rogic. It's yeah, I mean Tom Rogic has probably won the Scottish Premiership or. Sorry, I'm not sure if that's what it's called, but the top Scottish league, however many times with Celtic, he's played in the Champions League. It's, you know, it's a massive, a massive difference in quality there. Um, so I think the recruitment is where it's going to be key for us. And um, we're going to need some really smart recruitment to bring in players that are going to be on low wages, um, but are going to be good enough to, to play for us. Um, I think Thomas Asante is a brilliant example. Um, I'm not sure how much of it was smart recruitment rather than blind luck as he said that Bruce's son-in-law or whatever it was had recommended him but we need players of a similar in a, a similar story where they, they come in maybe from a league down or a couple of leagues down and we find a way to use them that's going to work really well and they're not going to look out of place by making a step up to the championship it's obviously much more difficult now to look abroad for these players um, since the the Brexit rules have come in um, so it's it's probably more of a case of um, finding these players in the English leagues. And from what I've seen, Albion have made a big uh, push in the last couple of months to to bring in more players to look at local leagues. I think it's probably more to do with youth football rather than looking for first-teamers, but just to um, improve the scouting network in in England. Um, so that's, that's something that's promising, um, but I can't imagine we see the effects of it for at least a couple of years. You guys have uh, have listened to the first half of this podcast and thought, oh my God, 
pour me a whiskey. Like this is this this is miserable stuff. It, it look it is a little bit because it's hard not to be a, a bit doom and gloom about the current situation at the club. Not least because the owner hasn't given us any indication of what his plan is to resolve this. Because the fact is that on the face of what we see in the accounts, in our current, in our recent recruitment, in the contracts that we know as a football club we're tied to, it's hard not to be negative because they all present problems. However, if the owner, if the people at the very, very top of our football club can actually show us a plan, a roadmap for how we get out of this situation, that would be enormously reassuring. And that is exactly why Pete, myself, the podcast itself, Albion Analysis, put its name against a letter which Action for Albion did a wonderful job. Um, and Ali Jones, who does a tremendous job with Action for Albion, um, who contacted us to ask whether we wanted to be, uh, wanted to be, um, named and put our logo on the, uh, on, on the letter. And we said categorically yes. We back that letter, which is an open letter. You can go in and read it on the Action for Albion, uh, social media pages. Um, and it was delivered, hand delivered by Ali himself to the club. And it's addressed to Mr. Lai and the ownership of the football club. And it basically calls upon them to come and speak to the supporters. Because we don't want to come on platforms like the one we've got and be negative and be depressing and ruin people's day when they listen to our podcast and think, oh, good God, what is happening to my football club? But the only reason we're doing that, Mr. Light, is because that's what we're thinking. Pete and I are sit, sat here thinking, what is happening to our football club? You know, in two, three seasons time, what division am I going to be watching this club in, if at all? And that's, you know, that's not being dramatic. That's being a genuine, that's a genuine concern at this point. Especially when you've borrowed against the ground and the training ground. You are, you're just worried about where we're going and you just stay silent, stay in your own country. You never come to the training ground. You never come to the stadium or certainly very, very rarely, you know, pop down once last season. We never see you. We never hear from you. I mean, we don't really understand the ownership of our football club. Is it you? Is it splintered off into a load of subsidiaries who actually owns us? I mean, why, why has, why has the, 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 uh, the, the wisdom loan been, uh, transferred across to, to West Bromwich Holdings? We don't understand any of these things, really. We don't understand the reasoning behind them. What is going on? And, uh, and look, I, I actually applaud Mr. Gourlay and, uh, and I know he's taken a lot of flack on this podcast from Pete and I, but I actually applaud him that I think he has said as much as he possibly could, if not more, given that he is ultimately employed by these people. And I, I, I actually have a lot of respect for how openly Ron Gourlay has, has spoken. I don't necessarily agree with everything that he said, um, and I do think there's an element of smoke and mirrors to it, and I certainly encourage any Albion fan who listens to the things Ron Gourlay says to take some of them with a bit of a pinch of salt. But... That having been, because he's employed by these people, because there's, there's certain things that he can't, can't say. But I actually think he said more than I probably would have expected him to in the recent months. He's opened lines of dialogue up with, uh, with action for Albion as well. And I applaud all of that. It, 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 
if you'd said to me six months whether I expected to see those things happening, I would have said absolutely not. So I, I, I actually have a lot more respect for Ron Gourlay at this moment in time than I did six months ago because because he he's at least opened those lines of dialogue and he actually has spoken reasonably candidly about certain issues surrounding the football club. But there there is a limit to what Ron Gourlay can say. He honestly probably doesn't know whether Lai's plan is to sell the club, whether it's to continue owning the club, whether there is a price that, that Lai is prepared to sell it for, whether that price is astronomical and completely unrealistic, whether there is a realistic price out there, whether if he doesn't sell the club, does he have a plan for additional investment? Because to be honest, to keep going forward as a competitive championship club, there's got a there's got to be some additional investment from somewhere or that's not going to happen. And my genuine concern is that within a couple of years, we'll tumble into League One. And we can't answer any of these questions, Pete. And and we, we said this some months ago that the time had come for Gauchan Lai to speak or at least somebody on his behalf who is allowed to say more than Gourlay is allowed to say to speak. I, I mean, at the time we called on Gourlay to speak, but to be fair to Ron Gourlay, he has, he has answered that call. He didn't answer our call. He answered Action for Albion's, but it doesn't matter whose call he answered. And Action for Albion have done an unbelievable job of getting answers and getting communication from the football club. But I think we've kind of got to a point now where Ron Gourlay has told us about as much as he possibly can. We need the man above him to speak. And until he does, Pete, all that's going to happen is people like us are going to react to the things that we see, the things that are put in the public domain, the accounts that are published, the the way they're interpreted by people who are much more learned than you and I, such as Kieran Maguire, Martin Ziegler, people like this. And we're going to react to what we're seeing. And what we're seeing is not very positive. We need the man at the top to tell us what the plan is, or if indeed there is a plan, don't we? Yeah, exactly that. Um, it must be quite difficult for Gorley to actually say, well, to say anything. Um, so in that respect, he's done quite well to, to open the lines of communication with, well, with the fans through Action for Albion, um, because it's obviously going to be very hard, well, impossible to speak out of turn about his employer. I'm sure there's probably more that he'd, he'd love to be able to say, but he just can't. So as you say, you need the people above Gorley to, to come out and, communicate as well um, because they'd be allowed to say much more and that's what the fans want really they want to understand what's going on because as you say what we're seeing at the minute and hearing at the minute is is very bad news and you struggle to see what the plan is if there is one um, which just then worries fans and, and leads to, to the protests that we see um, and yeah and, and just on those support. Pete I, I just want to say I encourage people to engage with Action for Albion, to engage with uh, with 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 the peaceful, and I want to emphasise, double underline that word, the peaceful protests that they continue to organise, because you you might say it's going to make no difference. It has already made a huge difference up to this point. It has ha- it has got the club to engage. Ron Gourlay has, uh, is speaking to them on a regular basis now. He's already given us answers to the questions he can answer. Um, it, uh, it has got parliamentary interest. Ali uh, Jones was, was at 10 Downing Street only a couple of weeks ago. That's huge. We're being talked about in PM's question time and things like that. We're being, we're being talked about in parliament. 
This is massive. We've achieved, already achieved. It, the, the, the protests and the action group has already achieved more than we ever could have imagined. So please, please, please don't think for one second that by engaging with these things, it won't make any difference. It already has. It's already got so much attention for us. And I just urge people at this point, because it's such, I think we will look back in years to come and see this year as a pivotal year in West Bromwich Albion's history. I think this will be, this will, this will be a year that we look back on a bit like how we look back on when, when, when we, rescued the club by by selling the likes of Kevin Kilban and Enzo Maresca. I think we're going to look back on on this year as hopefully in, in in an equally positive way as we go from strength to strength from there as a year that that made all the difference for us. But it, I think it's going to take every one of us, Pete, and and I, and I just urge people to 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 engage with the action groups because they they are making a difference. Yeah, and I think that's probably the the biggest criticism that was levelled at Action Free Albion when it was first set up and first put on social media is that people were saying, What's it gonna do? What's shining your phone torch gonna to do? I mean, as well, as you've just said, it's it's obviously gotten it's become massive really. Um I don't know how many followers and etc there are on Twitter and Instagram or whatever, but the fact that it's getting talked about in, in Parliament and Ali obviously made his trip down to 10 Downing Street, um, that's huge steps. And despite it not actually having an impact on the, the ownership of the club yet, it's certainly heading the, in the right direction. And we're definitely in a, a better place for it than we would have been if nothing had been done um, three or four months ago. So it's, it's yeah, it's not had a, obviously Lars not sold yet, but I'm sure he's feeling more pressure from this than he would have done if, if Ali Jones and everyone else hadn't been involved in the setup of Action for Albion and taking taking the step that they had. And if I hadn't got so much so much support and backing and engagement from the fans. So yeah, engaging in, in the content and in the protests and, and supporting it is only going to help our cause. Um and I think that's kind of what we said at the start is it may not make it it may not make any difference, but it's better to do it and find out if it make, makes a difference rather than just sit around and, and not be involved in it at all. So yeah, we're in full support of um, Action for Albion and yeah, it's certainly making big steps. So long may it continue. Of course, our one glimmer of hope in the, in the, in this other, otherwise dark cloud of a season is Carlos Corbran and the work he's doing with, with West Bromwich Albion. And obviously the result at the weekend, it was, it was one where we, we wanted the three points. The three points would have been massive, would have moved us to within two points of, uh, of Millwall with a, with a game in hand. That, of course, would have been absolutely huge. But nonetheless, I, uh, I mean, I, I saw, it was somebody behind me in the Birmingham Road shouted with about 15 minutes to go, come on, Albion, this is our season on the line here. You don't win today. It's all over. I don't certainly don't buy into that. That's that that that's that's ridiculous. Um, for me, we're five points off the playoffs with a game in hand over five out of the six teams in the playoff race. We're we're well and truly in this, and we've probably got a more favourable run in than most of them. So we are very much in this. Um, I'm not saying we're the favourites because we're not the favourites, but we are we we we're very much there or thereabouts uh, for me. And I have seen some criticism of of Corbran in in certain quarters 
calling him negative and and things like that. Look, Carlos gets his results in the in the ways that he gets them. I mean, look, we, we've conceded we've conceded one goal at home in the last twelve games. That's staggering. That really is. And we've uh, and, and we've won. 10 of those 12. So let's give, let's give credit where it's due. You know, the, the turnaround has been absolutely unbelievable. And where we were, I just want to put this in perspective, where we were on the 1st of November, before Carlos won his first game, we were bottom. We were 14 points off the playoffs. We were, we were averaging 0.8 points per game. That would see us accumulate over the whole season 37 points. And we were 17 points behind Blackburn, who are now the last club in the playoff places in sixth. As we stand now, we are, as I say, five points off the playoffs with a game in hand over five out of the six teams in the playoff race. This is the big one. We have averaged 1.95 points per game. Now, over the course of a season, that would see you earn 89.7 points or 90 points, all but the shouting. That is automatic promotion form and in some seasons, title winning form. And as I say, we are we're now five points behind Blackburn, who we were 17 points behind. And we've leapfrogged. 12 teams in the table whilst obviously look things could always be better and people will say oh look at Middlesbrough look at Middlesbrough yeah well uh, Middlesbrough haven't had the injury list that we've had Middlesbrough had a more balanced squad at the start of the season and they were able to spend a bit of money in in January which meant that they were able to get their loans loan for Cameron Archer who's made a huge difference done early because I think if we could have got Cameron Archer, we probably would have done. We end up scrambling around doing our business on, on the last couple of days. Look at the injuries that that we've had or have got. Phillips out for the season. Grady out for the season. O'Shea out for the season. Malumbi out for a month, possibly the season. We're not sure yet. And then we've been denied Brian up to this point. Not a big loss, I grant you. But Grant and people will say, oh, well, Carl and Grant, come on. Yeah, but you've lost Phillips and Grady. Probably your next choice on that left-hand side would be Carl and Grant. If you think um, Adam Reach is not an attacking enough option on that left-hand side, then you probably wish we had Carl and Grant on the bench because he would be. We, uh, we've, we've been denied Palmer, who was the best goalkeeper in the division up to the point where he got injured. And then on top of that, we, we, uh, we've, we've lost Bartley for months. He came back briefly against Millwall. And he's also lost Brandon. For about a month, he's lost Rogic for about a month. Granted, got both of them back now, but I mean that is that is ten players that he has in the last, literally in the last few months, lost for either the season or a minimum of a month. Pete, I think he's doing an unbelievable job. And whatever you think about the style of football, and I personally don't think it's as bad as some people would like to make out. I think to have got us to a position where we are five points off the playoffs with a game in hand on virtually everybody, I think is verging on working, working miracles. And also just one more thing I want to say before I throw it to you, Pete, is if you're one of those people who wants to say to me, as some people have done on social media, oh, anybody would have turned this around. With our squad, anybody would have got uh, turned us around. Wolves went down with a Premier League squad. 
Sunderland went down with a squad full of Premier League players. Leicester went down with a squad way too good to be anywhere near the relegation zone. Southampton as well. These so there's so many cautionary tales out there of teams that have come down from the from the Premier League, mismanaged themselves, and then tumbled through the division. Hull, another one. There's there's so many cautionary tales out there. There is absolutely no guarantee. This is going to sound like a, I'm turning it into a little bit of a wrong goal I love in, and I, you know, certainly don't mean to because I've been very critical of him in the past. But that appointment, I can't even begin to describe how pivotal that appointment after Steve Bruce was sacked was. He's got a lot wrong this season, Ron Gourlay. He hasn't improved the recruitment. He should have got rid of Bruce long before he did. As we said in the summer, we didn't think Bruce should have been given this season anyway. And I think we got, we got proved right over the course of the piece. So he's got a lot wrong, Gourlay. But I tell you what, kudos to him. Because the appointment of Corbran is massive, was massive in our season, and he's got it right. And the fact that we are on the verge of the playoffs with the injuries that we've got, with a bit of a mishmash squad, is credit to Gourlay for making the appointment, but massively to the job Carlos Corbran has done. It's incredible. Yeah, and the other thing with the injuries is it felt like we just kind of lost our best player each time. When Bartley got injured, he was performing extremely well. Um, just as Carlos Corbrand had kind of got us going. And with Matt Phillips, he was absolutely crucial to what we were doing at the start of the new year and just before that. And then he gets injured for it's a long-term injury. And the same with Alex Palmer. He was, as you say, one of probably the best shot stopper in the division when he was when he was starting for us and then and then he picks up this long term injury and he's out for almost the rest of the season. So not only have we had quite a number of injuries and long term injuries, we seem to have lost key players to us. Um and well yeah, just for the same point, Dara O'Shea has been probably our best centre back this season and, and we lose him for the rest of the season just coming towards the end of it. So it's we've lost key players, not just a high number of players. Um so I think to be able to deal with that and still pick up results and still be as solid as we've been at home um, is massive credit to Corbran. And if we do make it to the playoffs, then I think this defensive solidity is going to be really important because in those one-off games, if you can keep a clean sheet throughout the whole of the, the whole of the playoffs, then you stand a very, very good chance of going up to the Premier League. So yeah, I think the defensive solidity is going to be, well, has been really important. And to have only conceded one goal in the past, 12 home games is an incredible run. Yeah, so it's that's extremely impressive in itself. And um, we've won the majority of them as well. It's mainly the away form that's the stopping us from having broken into the playoffs already. But five points behind with a game in hand, it's not a bad place to be at this stage of the season, especially when everyone that watches the Championship knows that any result can happen on a weekend. You just have to look at Huddersfield. And I was going to say Huddersfield four, Middlesbrough one. I think is the is the key one, and Stoke four, Coventry nil as well. Yeah, well, Stoke are starting to come into a bit of form here. So, or we should you know, say Coventry be... nil, Stoke four. It was at Cov. Yeah, I mean the championship. You get you get some crazy results. So you expect. Well, I mean the teams that we're chasing. There's a number of them that we're chasing as well. So one of them is going to slip up and I'll be very surprised if at the end of the season it's the same four that are in the playoff spots at the minute are the same four at the end of the season so I think we've just got to keep keep going as we are if we can keep keep the incredible record that we've got of only conceding one 
home in the past 12 games if we can keep that going um, and just start to pick up a, a few more points away from home then we, we're definitely going to be in with a shout come the end of the season of course, the most recent of those solid home performances was against against Millwall. Uh, we drew nil nil. Um, so, as you say, it's still only one goal conceded at home since Corbrand's first game in charge of the Albion, which is which is the real positive. I, as I, as I said at the top of the piece, I am seeing quite a lot of negativity around um around the performance pete and and i understand it to a certain to a certain degree because there were aspects of it which the fans are reasonable to be unhappy about i think that there are a number of factors around that game so let's get into those believe believe you me we're going to come to the referee um we very rarely uh, i make it a, a point of pride on this on this podcast that we very rarely talk about referees because I think you have to take accountability for your own performance a lot of the time. And, and I think people overblow the impact of referees decisions on the overall result of a game. So we rarely, rarely mention them, to be honest. However, I think on this occasion that uh, Mr. Simpson leaves us absolutely no choice. So we'll come, we, we will, we will come to that in due course. But before then, Pete, we mentioned the injuries there. Obviously, the two of those on the eve of the game, as it were, were O'Shea and Malumbi getting getting injured on international duty for Ireland. By the way, I, I don't, I don't know what Ireland were would, would doing. Did they send them out into some sort of a battle? By the way, because I saw Evan Ferguson got injured as. As well it seems like everybody that played for Ireland over over the course of the international window has, has come back injured but to lose those two players was huge and 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 one thing that we that fans have been criticizing us for is some of the extremely slow distribution out from the back Ajayi passing the ball straight out of play on more than one occasion um and I can't help but think you've you've highlighted it a number of times that O'Shea to Malumbi is a fairly common route out of defence for us. And to be denied both of those players, I think must have impacted that distribution out from the back. Yeah, of course. Um, O'Shea's probably our biggest, or has been our biggest player in the real early stages of build-up. Um, he's the most involved, he's the most central, tend to going to the kind of back three when we're building up with Peters operating out on the left um, almost in the in the left back position and then well kind of furlong and Malumbi rotating in and out of the right back position with O'Shea in the middle so O'Shea's always heavily involved um, he's probably our most capable uh, centre back with the ball at his feet in terms of his passing and his dribbling Ajay um, is probably a better carrier of the ball but isn't as good at passing the ball so to miss O'Shea is He's obviously going to be a big miss um, when you're thinking about how Albion operate with the ball. But he's also very solid as a defender, so without the ball. Um, and Malumbi is similar. He's got so much energy that he's always involved with build-up and he kind of rotates nicely with Furlong and quite often finds himself in that kind of the first line of the defensive line of, the, of our build-up play. Um, with Furlong often kind of pushing a bit higher or in field a little bit. So... They've both been key key cogs into how we've been playing under Corbran. 
Is it so fair to say that Ajayi can't do what O'Shea does? I mean, Ajayi's probably better carrying the ball, but I looked at his passing data, Pete, and 79% pass completion, it's not it's not great for a centre-half, is it? I mean, even one that progresses the ball. Peter's obviously got 90%, but then he, he tends to play it very simply or tends to give it to Ajayi. But even for the guy who progresses the ball out, 79% is not brilliant. That's That's a midfielder's numbers, isn't it? Yeah, well, well, I think Yakuza was at about ninety percent, but um, yeah, I don't think Ajayi can can pass the ball nearly as well as O'Shea. Um, so that's might be a, become a bit of an issue. But as I say, he's probably better carrying it forward. So it's it's all about adapting the system to to make the most of the strengths of the players that you got out on the pitch. And it's something that we've seen Corbran do since he's he's taken over. He's he's got more out of certain players than what Bruce was getting out of them, and that's probably largely down to putting them into into a system, creating tactics that work for for each player. Um I think Peter's got a better a higher pass completion against Millwall, but he, he also completed more progressive passes than Ajay did. I think Peter's got seven and Ajay I think Ajay was three. So yeah, he was probably the better of our two centre backs with distributing the ball. Um and it may be something that Corbran kind of uses if he does feel that Peters is better passer of the ball than Ajay is that we, we use a bit more of Peters to move the ball forward than, than he was he's you know, he's has to do a bit more than he was when he was playing next to O'Shea. So it's it's um it's obviously created a few issues for Corbran, but I've got more faith in Corbran to kind of find the solution that and create a different maybe slightly different style than than what we've seen before than than I would have done under some of our previous managers. Do you understand the frustration of the fan base to what many perceive or many seem to perceive from what you see on social media as slow build-up and I, I know some refer to it as as boring um and I, I whilst i get that i don't i, I don't necessarily agree um i i, I actually appreciate what I, I get what we're trying to do um and to a certain degree it worked against against huddersfield and wigan i thought it worked enough to win the games anyway so it certainly worked for me against wigan huddersfield a little bit less so but we did enough i think once you took o'Shea out of that I wonder whether it still works. Um, and as you say, maybe he's got to find a, find a solution, but um, there, there does seem to be murmurings around the fan base, around the style of play out, for, out from the back. And I get that. I, I get that frustration because you need, it, it, it requires patience to watch it, but equally against a team like Millwall, there's no point pumping it forward. And, Without an obvious passer out from the back, we 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 need to find new routes, don't we? This is where Corbrand's intelligence as a manager comes into play because before Phillips would come deeper or come narrower to get the ball, but we've lost him. You'd got Malumbi would like to come in deeper, and the thing that I noticed as the game went on against. Um, uh, and it was it was showed up by the average touch map was that the one solution that Corbrand seemed to offer was to instruct Yukoslu to come in alongside the centre halves when we were playing out from the goalkeeper and actually take the ball off Griffiths and be the one to distribute it rather than rather than Peters and rather than Ajay. But then obviously the problem that then creates is there's one less player in midfield to give the ball to. Yeah, it's as you say, it's about Corbrand finding finding solutions to to these problems and I kind of understand the frustration that 
Uh, people want it played a bit bit faster, but I mean, we're seeing in terms of the the way that we like to build up, it's it's almost the opposite to what we were seeing under Villa and Ishmael, where it's that was all about getting the ball forward quickly and and then trying to um, win the ball back in lots of energy in high areas and then get it forward quickly again. Under Corbran, it's it's a lot more patient and a lot more of moving the ball side to side. You know, we we like to go down the wings quite often and if we kind of come to a dead end there, then we just recycle it back and, and try the other wing. And it's very patient um, and, yeah, it's, it's slow in many ways. But, again, it's probably adapted to the players that we've got available to us. We don't really have a central midfielder that is extremely com- comfortable with receiving the ball in tight areas and then moving it forward. Um, is it, sorry, Pete, just on that point, is it worth highlighting at this point that when people sort of get frustrated with the style of play, that Corbrand's options in terms of personnel just seem to get more and more limited by by, by the week? And he's actually, I mean, he's trying to find solutions without really a variety of tools available to him. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I don't think we've got tons of players that are really dynamic players to be able to move it really quickly and but still accurately because I think Corbyn wants to keep control of the game and not just turn it into a you know into a basketball match where it's just you know one team attacking counter attack and then counter attack and then counter attack I think he wants a bit more control in the game so that we're not giving up lots of good chances which um, obviously we haven't been especially at home you just have to look at the defensive record that we've been talking about at the Hawthorns to, to see that but mostly in away games as well, we don't give up that many big chances. So I think having the patience is, is partly trying to find these openings, but also just keeping control of the game. And well, if we've got the ball, then you know they can't score. So if you if you keep control of the game and, and are patient, then if the opening does come, then you, then you can try it without having too much risk of being very open if you do lose the ball. So it's it's about finding that balance between having the attacking threat but also being defensively solid whilst you do have the ball. Um, you do need that that support behind you as well. And to be fair to us as well, you know, we didn't actually have. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's always interesting. You look at things like field tilt versus um, versus possession. And whilst we had more of the ball, I think that uh, I think you you said it before we came on air, Pete, that you've been looking at some fresh data that kind of shows that uh, that the momentum, particularly up until probably the 70th minute mark was was actually with Millwall especially at the start of the second half yet other than one flick header from from Bradshaw I never thought we looked overly threatened at any point I have to say I I think some of our defending against probably one of the most difficult teams in the championship to defend against and I will happily put it out there that that game on Saturday it's probably the most difficult home game we've got left, if not the most difficult game that we've got left in terms of the. Because uh, I think you've got to respect Millwall for what for what they are. Yes, they, they they're combative and they put the ball into the box fairly early, but they've got players who can play as well. They've got they've got George Honeyman. They've got Zion Fleming, who is an absolutely fantastic player. And they move the ball well. They get they get their winger, they get their fullbacks involved uh, as well. And when they get set pieces, they've got a plan for them. And Jake Cooper is an obvious massive, massive threat. I think they're a horrible team to play against. I tell you what, if we if we got to the playoffs, they're the last team. Uh, give me give me Borough or Sheffield United or Luton, 
long before Millwall. I, the last team I'd want to play in the in the playoffs is Millwall. I'm telling you right now. Um, so I think I think they're a horrible team to play against. So I don't look at a draw as any sort of a disaster with them at all. And I think they actually had the momentum for large chunks of the game, probably until we brought DK on, which um, and and actually had the threat of DK and Brandon up front. And I thought that changed the dynamic of the uh, of the game uh, a little bit. Um, but I, I just think it's one of the toughest games that we're going to come up against. They're a team that's been on an incredible run. Talk about our points total since we appointed Corbran. They've earned 1.65 points per game. Now that is comfortably playoff form since uh, since the 1st of November. So they've been on a great run as well. They're a horrible team to play against. I think that uh, their away form has been uh, phenomenal. I think they've won something like five out of their last six away from uh, away from the new den, which is not something you usually associate with Millwall. Usually it's they're brilliant at home, but less because they've got that atmosphere and everything like that, but less so away. They found a way under Rowett to play away from home as well. I think that was a really, really tricky fixture. And it's one that we've come through with a result. I think it was a must not lose rather than a must win. Because I think if you let Millwall go eight points ahead of you, I mean, I look at the table at present and I think Borough and Luton are uncatchable for us. I think if we let Millwall go eight points clear of us, I think they probably would have fallen into that bracket as well, even with a game in hand. I think at the moment we're fighting for fifth or sixth. I don't think we can catch the third or fourth place teams. If we'd lost to Millwall and they had gone even further clear of us, I think we'd have been we'd have all been fighting for one place, which would have been Blackburns, and I think that would have been a horrible situation to be in. So I actually don't view that result on Saturday with the level of negativity that a lot of people do. Yeah, I'm the same. I think I think we actually gained points, didn't we, on the on the top six um, because of that one point. But... Well, no, no effect. It, it, Blackburn dropped below Millwall on goal difference, but it's the same number of points. But effectively, we're we're now five points away from two teams as opposed to five points away from one. Yeah, so we're a little bit closer. Obviously, a win would have been absolutely massive to, to catch, to help catch um, the playoff contenders, especially Millwall. But a draw is still, it's, it's a good point because Millwall are obviously a very good side. Um you're right about the momentum. If you look at the expected threat they had, they created a higher expected threat. So moved the ball into more dangerous areas than Albion did over the, the course of the 90 minutes. Um, most of that coming in the first, in the first about 25 minutes of the second half, but they're a good side. Um, and yeah, there's a reason that they're, they're currently in the playoff spots. Um, so it's yeah, they deserve to be there, and I think that I I think just because teams like Millwall and Luton, I think that gets overlooked. I think people think we should just go and turn these teams over. Millwall and Luton are really, really good sides. Exactly, um, and I think yeah, they're probably probably um, kind of underrated by fans because of kind of where they've been. They're the unfashionable. Past. They're unfashionable, yeah. Pete. Yeah, basically, and but they're they're excellent sides. I think Luton have. I think I saw somewhere that they picked up the most the most points over the past two championship seasons, which obviously helps when the two that picked up the most points last season went up and haven't been picking up points this season. But it's kind of that they've been the best of the rest. So um, I, I I fancy them to nick third. I'm going to put it out there now. I fancy them to nick third. Uh, sorry, nick second. I mean, uh, I I fancy them to nick second. I, uh, I, they're not they're not far up the same points as Middlesbrough. If you said to me one of those two teams at this moment in time is going to nick second, I think I think Luton could do it. 
they they don't they don't seem to be stopping. Yeah, well, I, I said to a couple of people before the last round of fixtures were played was that I think Middlesbrough won, won next second, but obviously the last thing I was expecting was them to lose four one to to Huddersfield. So maybe that changes things. But yeah, Luton a a top side this season and last season they're very good. So they certainly deserve to be where they are. And yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they did next second. Um, that second spot seems to definitely be still still be open despite early on Sheffield United looking like they kind of were nailed down for automatics they've slipped up a bit recently and and it's opening up for that spot so yeah it seems like Luton and Millwall are there on credit do you agree as well Pete that we are that we are fighting for two spots that that, that Borough and Luton are probably a little bit out of reach and realistically we're, we're, we're striking to catch either Millwall or Blackburn that's what it looks like at the minute um as you say, they both seem to be just in, in really good form and just keep going and keep picking up the points that they need. Obviously, Boris slipped up um, at the weekend, but yeah, I, I can't see them slipping up too much again. So it's certainly looking like it's it's the two spots that we're chasing. But having said that, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's 11 points. It's 11 points to, to Borough and Luton. And granted, we've got a game in hand on both of them. But I mean, that, even if we won that game in hand, Pete, that still means that we've got to win three more games in the in the last seven than those two. Yeah. So, it's you know, it's I'd be very surprised if it's if the playoff, well, if the top the top six doesn't include Middlesbrough and Luton. But, you know, if it all it takes is a bad run of form for one of them to to drop off and the pressure come on them in a bit but yeah I do think they'll be they'll be there come the end of the season the end of the season so it looks like we're we're you know fighting for the for the last two places of the playoffs one player that I just wanted to discuss regarding the the Millwall game and this is where this is where it's re- really interesting doing a a database podcast because you have your eye test on the Saturday afternoon not 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 the one you have at Specsavers I probably need to go for one uh, one of those given the, the 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 size of the lenses that I have to wear but um, the the eye test of watching the game on the Saturday and then you come we we generally record these on a Sunday which is what we're doing at the moment and and you you sit down in the sort of cold light of day and you look at the data around it and sometimes you look at the data and it and it tells you it, it, that what you thought you saw you did see and you're right and you know you think oh I'm aren't I clever I know about football and there's other times when you sit and you look at the data and you think what game was I watching? And that is exactly how I felt when I sat down and looked at the data around Nathaniel Chalabers performance Pete because I have to say I came away from that game and I was saying to my dad as we walked back up the Birmingham road towards our car that for me he's not the answer in that position I didn't don't think you know I was saying we were obviously not gonna have much of a choice but to play him with with Mullumby out but for me he's he's not a patch on Mullumby he's not the answer and then I come to research the pod and he's had uh, he's he's had the most he's won the most tackles He's had the most shots in our team and he's also blocked the most shots. So he's had a hefty contribution to the game. And I have to say, I, I, maybe I need to sit here and rethink my assessment of Chalaber's performance because he is one of those players that has a rather languid style. 
to him. And I think, uh, and look, I've, I, I read Twitter. I see what people say. And I, I certainly wasn't going to object to anything because I largely agreed with it. You know, there's a lot of people saying that they felt he was, that, that, that he was lazy, that he, uh, that he wasn't, you know, putting it in uh, against Millwall. But then you look at the data. And if he's winning more tackles than anybody else, if he's blocking as many shots as anybody, same as Yukoslu, more than anybody else on the Albion team, if he's having shots further up the field, then you've got to say that's that's a pretty good box-to-box midfielder. And maybe, just maybe, there's a learning here for us that because Jason Malumbi is this little metronome. He's this bundle of energy that he flies around the pitch. He thumps into challenges and he runs his heart out for the cause that he is always going to look like he's putting more in than somebody who has a much more languid style. But I always go back to Chris Brunt and I remember people saying Brunt, oh, Brunt's lazy. Brunt doesn't work hard enough because Chris Brunt had a way of being just elegant and languid about the, about the pitch that he had a way of making the game almost look easy. And when you actually went to the data and looked at the ground covered, Brunty was always, always in the top percentile. He was all, he, quite often. He was the, the, the guy who covered the most ground. He, he worked extremely hard. And sometimes the eye test, because of the a way a player covers himself on the field, carries himself, I should say, on the field, can be extremely misleading. It certainly misled me, and I'll happily open up and say that, that I had a completely different opinion of Chalaba's performance before looking at the data than after. And I think that, I, 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 and I think that with Chalaba, I think maybe he does contribute more than he would appear to just because he has a languid and relaxed style to his play. What do you think, Pete? Yeah, I think that's always um, quite an easy easy thing to pick up on is is how they move about the pitch and kind of make your judgment on that, where it can kind of disguise what's actually going on. And he is a player that doesn't look like he does too much or move, move around too much or too quickly, which which probably disguises what he actually does. Um, I don't think he did. I don't think he was too, too box-to-box. Um I think he kind of, I don't think he showed as much energy or would have covered as much ground as, or anywhere near as much ground as Malumbi would usually. Again, it's, it's, you can't really expect him to because that's, that's not his game. So as I say, it's, it's another, another issue that needs to be solved by Coran because you, it's not like you've got a, a like, like for like replacement for Malumbi. Um, but I do think he had a decent game. As you say, he topped quite a few of the, the metrics for Albion. Um, and, uh, yeah, kind of. He moved the ball around um, quite well in midfield. Um, had a decent pass accuracy and made a couple of progressive passes. Um, and, and did try to move the ball into the final third as well. So he's, um, I think he, yeah, I'd say he had a decent game. Um, I don't think he had a spectacular game, but he seems to be the best replacement that we've got for. Well, yeah, probably the best replacement that we've got for Mullumbi. He's, he's probably more reliable than. Taylor Gardner Hickman would be. I think Gardner Hickman's more probably, legs than Livermore. Yeah, more legs for Livermore. I think Gardner Hickman's probably a closer, a, a more similar player to Malumbi than Chalaber is, but I think Corbin kind of. We relied. might need both of them if that challenge on Yukoslu has, uh, has caused him some damage. Well, yeah, that's a, another issue that I'm sure we're going to discuss. Um, but yeah, I think Corbin kind of values that 
reliability and the experience that Chalaba brings rather than um, the like-for-like -like change that Gardner Hitman would be for Molumbi. So I, I think that makes sense as to why he was picked. But as you say, we might, might need both of them in the coming weeks. One other thing from the data, Pete, that I just wanted to challenge uh, is that people seem to be liking to, to say that um, we didn't offer much of a threat in the game because we had one shot on target in the whole match. I just like, again, this is one of those things where people say there's lies, damn lies and statistics. There's not if you use them properly. And if you use shot data properly, then you will see the real picture of what happened. The far more important metric here, I mean, first of all, there's threat, which, and and I'm sure you'll come on to talk about that, Pete, because, I mean, just because a shot's on target doesn't make it more valuable than a shot off target. I'm not having anyone tell me that a trickled shot on target into the keeper's arms is of more value than Brandon's shot that flashes just wide and also reaches um shot that went just past the just past the post in the first half but then on top of that what I what I'm more interested in is only eight of those 16 shots that we had were off target so seven of the shots that we had were blocked now that was and mostly in a couple of goal mouth scrambles where Millwall players were throwing their bodies on the line. Just because that doesn't count as a shot on target doesn't mean it hasn't got value because there was a couple of those where if the shot gets beyond the Millwall player, I'm pretty sure it's going in the back of the net. The Millwall player is blocking that pretty close into the goal. And I think people have undervalued our overall threat in the game against Mill. It was by no means, by the way, I'm not, because I, I know people like to go to extremes. Uh, oh, Chris said we were a great attacking force against Mill. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm, I'm just saying it was not as toothless as some people would like to have you believe because there was only one shot on target because for me, that doesn't tell the whole story. I think Reach is extremely unlucky with the one in the first half. Brandon's shot in the second is a wonderful effort and so close to going in the top corner. And as I say, some of the shots that were blocked in those uh, in those goal mile scrambles, particularly the ones in the first half, if they got beyond the Millwall defender, I think that they would have uh, they would have really troubled the keeper and probably. Long wouldn't have got wouldn't have got anywhere near them. I think we offered more threat in that game than some people would possibly like to give us credit for, Pete. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of shots on target as a metric to judge how well you performed because, as you say, I'd rather have a, a striker try and pick out the corners of the net than just make sure you get the shot on target and it goes straight down the keeper's throat just for the sake of getting the shot on target. So, yeah, I think a shot that you know hits the post or just goes wide is probably more valuable than one that just you know trickles into the keeper's feet uh so it's yeah i'm not a big fan of it um and as you say block shots come into it as well so i wouldn't use that to judge on judge us on how um threatening we were um you can maybe use it a bit to judge on how clinical we were but you know you still see the same issues there so uh yeah i think you've got to take more considerate consideration into how many shots we actually have and where we're taking them from and if you look at that, then you can, if you want to look a bit deeper, you can look at the expected goals as well, which we had 1.5 of. Mill had 1.15, so they created a few chances as well. So it's, yeah, I think there was 
a couple of chances there. Um, we're probably a bit unlucky that. So realistically speaking, Pete, you know, on any given day, that game finishes either one-one or possibly two-one to us. Yeah, it's you know, it's um, around about that. You'd say I think one-one would probably be a fair result. Um, I mean, nil-nil is probably a fair result, but yeah, you can probably expect one of the chances to find the back of the net. But yeah, there was as I think what you said is probably a good way of putting it is that we weren't toothless, but we were at our best in terms of creating chances and being an attacking threat, but we definitely weren't as bad as maybe some people are trying to make out. Yeah, because shots on target, it, it doesn't really it doesn't really mean too much, I don't think, because it's more about where you're trying to put your shots rather than just getting them on target. I know you can't score if you don't get it on target, but equally you can't score if you just hit it straight down the keeper's throat unless he has an absolute shocker, which they they don't tend to at this level. So... It's more about... Unless you've got David Button in goal. Well, yeah, but uh, <laughs> we're not going to come up against him this season, so... No. Yeah, so it's it's more about getting a number of shots off and getting them off in good good areas as well. So I don't think we were... I think we were all right going forward. And we probably would have been helped a bit going forward if the referee had been a bit better at his job. And look, we're going to finish on talking about him. Uh, There was no way of getting around it. I appreciate some of the feedback that I've been given on on Twitter because I do a little bit of work for Pitch Footy and I I give them uh, a a video blog of my thoughts after the game. And and my thoughts after the game were very critical of the referee. Um, And look, I understand some of the people who've come back to me and said, you know that that um they don't like that level of criticism of referees i i completely get where you're coming from especially if you're a grassroots referee and you have to put up with abuse on a weekend you don't deserve that whatsoever however there's for me there's a big difference between criticizing a grassroots referee and criticizing a professional referee who is well paid to do their job who is in a pretty protected environment as well on the pitch as opposed to the one that uh, that guys at grassroots level have to have to put up with um when they when they're out on a pitch and also for me fundamentally a referee's first job is to protect the players on the pitch i didn't think mr simpson did that on the weekend at all. Um, I, I thought there was a number of challenges that he could have stamped down upon and, uh, and, and dished out yellow cards and kind of laid down the law fairly early on for the players, which would have st- uh, stopped some of the antics that went on later in the game, which in the end could end up robbing us of, um, of OK Koslu for a few games because he's got absolutely slammed into in that challenge. Although, that being said... That player has won the ball, and we'll come on to that in just a moment. But I thought, some, and and look, and it works both ways as well. I know there's a picture doing the rounds of one of the one of the Millwall players who's got multiple stitches, and I don't think he defend he protected either group of players. So this is not a one-eyed West Bromwich Albion opinion. But what this is is a West Bromwich Albion podcast, and I'm obviously going to focus on the incidents where he let us down, as opposed to the ones where. Millwall feel he let them down because I know they feel like Jake Cooper should have had a penalty in the first half. And having seen the footage back, I understand their argument. But nonetheless, some of the decisions second half from that referee were nothing short of appalling. I mean, there's the first rugby tackle on DK where the guy has got two arms around him. He drags him to the floor. The referee somehow gives a foul against DK. And then when DK gets up to remonstrate with him about it, books DK. But DK effectively gets booked for being fouled. 
then there's the one where we're breaking forward, where Brandon's going down the left-hand side and the guy takes DK out, completely takes him out off the ball. And Brandon is left with no one to cross to in the middle. The referee doesn't give the foul. I actually understand the referee not seeing that, by the way, because he's probably watching the ball. But how the linesman who has a view all the way across the pitch doesn't see it is absolutely beyond me. Those were two dreadful decisions. But the worst of the lot, Pete, is the one which could have been pivotal in the game, is the penalty slash offside slash incident where Yukoslu got injured. Now, anybody, if you haven't watched it back, if you've just seen seen the incident at the game, I encourage you to go and watch the uh, the highlights that Albion have put on YouTube because I've watched them back and it shows it extremely clearly. It shows a number of things. Corbrand said in his post-match interview, he said there are three decisions the referee could give. If he feels that Yukoslu has won the ball, it's not offside, it's a foul on Yukoslu because Yukoslu gets smashed after the uh, after the ball has gone the second is if the um if the w- ball is won by the millwall player it can't be offside so therefore the play goes on and it then comes down to a decision as to who gets the ball first dk or long if long gets there first it's a corner if dk gets there first it's a penalty the three decisions the three possible outcomes are foul to west bromwich albion penalty kick or corner kick to West Bromwich Albion. They are the only three options. Offside, which is the decision given, is not an option, which makes it mind-blowing. When you watch the footage back, it is clear what the decision should have been. It is very clear that the Millwall player wins the ball. So it cannot be offside, because it's a Millwall player that has played the ball through. With intent, it's not a deflection, with intent, which means it plays DK onside. It's also extremely clear when you see the angle that is high behind the goal that DK gets a touch on the ball before Long gets to him and Long takes him out. Pete, it should have been a penalty. But even with getting it wrong, there's degrees of getting it wrong that I'm prepared to accept. And for the referee to get it wrong to the point where we don't get a foul, we don't get a corner, and we don't get a penalty, but they get an offside, I find mind-blowing. And I just, look, I realise I went hard on my criticism um, of the referee on Saturday night. And look, I apologise to anybody who was upset by it, because obviously I'm emotional after uh, after the game. Whilst I am... This is why we do the podcast around about 24 hours afterwards, because we're able to be much more measured because those emotions have sunk in a little bit. When I record my pitch footy content, generally I record it and am emotional and because that's what they want. They want want my immediate reaction to the game. So you are kind of seeing two sides of the same thing, but I still feel the same way that I think it is the most appalling decision from a group of officials that I've seen in a long while. And as I say, you should it should be noted that we never speak about officials really on this podcast, only in extreme cases like Huddersfield away where Grant doesn't get that penalty in the last minute. It's rare that we speak about officials on this podcast, but I can't see a way around it because he was so bad. He's in, he, He's been given bad decisions to both teams, but the one for the the offside as they ended up giving it is beyond comprehension for me, Pete. Yeah, like you say, they got that one all wrong. It was clearly the Millwall player that, that played the ball through to DK. 
who granted was in an offside position, but because it was the Millwall player that played it, shouldn't have been given his offside. Um, I don't think you can really blame the linesman for that one because he can't see who has played the ball. Um, he can only see that DK is in an offside position. I think if he speaks to the ref, then the ref can tell him that, well, you'd hope the ref be able to see that it was played by a Millwall player and therefore he shouldn't be offside, which then means that, that it should be a penalty because I think it's quite clear that DK got to the ball first and the keeper kind of went through through him to get to the ball. So, you know, that's that's a decision that, that would have changed the game. And then I suppose Millwall fans would argue that, you know, the, the little wrestling match was in the first half that, that Furlong was involved in may have been one at the other end. So you could argue that it's, it's one each that, that didn't get given. But yeah, we I mean, like you say, we don't really talk about referees too much on here. We tend to, to focus on the, the performance of Albion and the opposition, but I think on a whole, the standard of refereeing in the championship this season has been been pretty poor. And I mean, and you, you know, you're right. We don't talk about it a lot, but I mean, DK came on to be a big threat, and when he is rugby tackled twice going forward, and then on top of that is taken out by the goalkeeper and it's not given, it's hard not to talk about it because when people start saying things like, "Well, we weren't enough of an attacking threat." Okay, but what's our main striker supposed to do when when they don't even have to use the rules of the game to stop him? Yeah, it, I mean, obviously, it, it certainly doesn't help. I mean, I, from what I've seen, it, it was kind of a a pretty evenly poor performance from the ref. That it wasn't that it was mostly one way that he was given decisions. It was just kind of equally poor for for both teams, which I suppose is one benefit. There wasn't it didn't look like a a performance of biased refereeing. Not, I'm not saying intentional bias, but just you know, being terrible for one side and and not the other side. It, it was kind of just a poor performance all around. So I suppose that's one benefit. It, it seemed it seemed arrogant to me, Pete. It it seemed it, it, you know I'm, it, because as you say, he quite easily could have overturned the linesman's decision. He must have seen what he saw with the with the Yukoslu challenge. He must know that, but he doesn't overturn it. I also think that booking DK for protesting what is clearly a foul on him just shows just shows the guy's arrogance really i i don't know i don't well it either show, shows arrogance or a total lack of bravery to make big decisions in a big game yeah and i suppose the easy decision at the end of the game as well was to to not give a penalty and to give the offside rather than than making it completely controversial by giving a penalty when it may well i mean it should have been but had it not been as obvious as it is seeing the replays, then it's probably just the easiest decision to not give it um, and look for something else to give. But um, as I say, it's not the first poor performance from a referee that we've seen at the Hawthorns or in our away games as well. But and I'm sure it's not going to be the last um, this season because the general standard of refereeing in the Championship does seem to be to be pretty poor. Absolutely. Well, look, that's enough on uh, on on the referee, and that's it. we've 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 done a rather extended podcast uh, for today um, because obviously we had to talk about all the financial stuff at uh, at the start. And to be fair, we've not we've not spoken for a couple of weeks because uh, because it has been the international break. So um, a little bit of an elongated pod this week. I don't know whether to uh, 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 that whether you'd be thankful for that or whether I should apologise for for giving you uh, probably over an hour and a half's worth of content to listen to from myself and Pete. But of course, Pete, um, just to finish off, 
upcoming is the Easter weekend. Just to let everybody know the sort of schedule for us, we will let the two Easter games, the uh, the Good Friday and then the Easter Monday game pass before we actually record again. So we'll record after the QPR game on Easter Monday. And obviously it is, it, it's a massive two games for Albion. I mean, we play two teams who are down the bottom, Rotherham away on, on Good Friday and then, um, and then QPR who are in the most abysmal form on Easter Monday. So an opportunity to get six points against two reasonably struggling teams. But not only that, Pete, when you when you actually have a look around at some of the other fixtures, Millwall face Luton in the twelve thirty game on, on Good Friday. Blackburn face Norwich. Swansea, who have picked up some important points recently, take on Coventry. So there's a number of teams on Good Friday who are going to take points off each other. And then Coventry play Watford on Easter Monday. So again, one of those teams have got to drop points. There's a massive, massive opportunity. And I think by the end of the Easter weekend, we are going to have a much better picture of whether Albion are in or out of this playoff race. I'm very unloath to, I've been loath in recent weeks to react too heavily to any results. But I think if we find ourselves in a better position than we find ourselves now in terms of our proximity to the playoffs after the Easter weekend, I think we're banging this playoff race. I think if we're worse off, Pete, I think we may well be out of it. Yeah, the next couple of results, are, a couple of games are obviously, obviously going to be crucial for us. And it's not long left of the season. I was shocked when I saw that it was only five weeks left. We've still got was it um, eight games to play? Eight games to play, yeah. So we've only five weeks left. So, you know, it's going to be non-stop fixtures from now till the end of the season. So. It's going to be non-stop pods as well, Pete. <laughs> it is, yeah. You're going to be sick of hearing our voices. So, um, But yeah, it's going to be, you know, from one week to the next, it can the picture for the push for playoffs can, can be massively changed just from a couple of results. Let's hope for a wonderful, wonderful Easter weekend for the Baggies. As I say, Rotherham on the Friday and then QPR at home on the Monday. We will be back after the second of those games because, you know, with two two games in such incredibly short proximity, then... It's really, really hard to uh, to turn a pod around in between them. But we will cover the two games in one podcast. And then after that, especially whilst it is meaningful anyway, if it gets to a point where the season becomes less meaningful, we we, we, we will may well not do a pod after every game. But whilst our season has meaning, we will certainly endeavour as much as our personal schedules allow us to, from that point on, do a podcast for every game after Easter Monday, after the QPR game, because obviously this is the business end of the season. And whilst there is something on it for West Bromwich Albion, we will try and give you all of our reaction to that. But until next time, until after the Easter Monday, after Easter Monday, have a wonderful lengthy weekend over the Easter period. And we will speak to you after the QPR game. Thanks for listening and up the baggies.
Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.